Morning. How is everybody? How about those kids, huh? I mean, that was, that was awesome. Well, uh, if you've been coming to church here for a while, you know that I am not averse to embarrassing confessions. As unease settles over the crowd. I have a new one for you. And that is that a few years ago, to my great surprise, and I tried to fight it off, but I couldn't, I got into one of these TV decorating shows. Yeah. Man credit canceled, right? The reason I got into it is because I love my wife. And she was into it. It was called, maybe you saw it, it's been off the air for years now, but it was called Trading Spaces. Anybody familiar? <laughs> Only female voices. That's, uh, that was tough. That was hard on me, I'll be honest. But I got into it because she was into it. And a little tip for you married dudes, if you will make an effort to love the things your, life, your wife loves, your life gets better. Okay, just a little... Little tip, if you insist on only loving the things that you love, including yourself, your life will get immeasurably hard. So just, that's free, has nothing to do with the sermon, just a little front side bonus for coming to church this morning. But it's true, and she was watching this thing, and, and every manly bit of my being rebelled against it. And one day in self-righteousness, I said to her, babe, I, I don't get it. You take this time every week and you concern yourself with the affairs of total strangers. And you watch them make this big effort about something that doesn't belong to you. And you wait for the outcome on something that has nothing to do with your own life. And she said, oh, you mean like the Dallas Cowboys? <laughs> yeah. And that, that shut me up and helped me understand a little bit of the attraction. She said, these things are like sports for girls. I thought, well, that, that makes sense. And then, just because I loved her and, and I'd been shown my place, I, I sat down and watched one and didn't really understand, didn't, you know, the drama, the human hatred, just the, the pathos, all the stuff that goes into those shows. But then, at the end, I started to understand what the payoff was. In this particular show, two families would trade homes for a couple days and work furiously on remodeling a part of the other family's home. And at the end of the show, they would bring them in blindfolded to see what they had done without their real knowledge or consent or signing off on any of it. Remember this? And it drives English teachers crazy, they call that moment in all such shows by an ungrammatical word. They call that moment, when everybody sees the outcome, the big reveal, which is a noun, okay? That's, it's, it's wrong, okay? It should be revelation, not reveal, but it's part of our culture now. And everybody, everybody lives for the big reveal. And I discovered that I love the big reveal as long as it went hard in one direction or another. 
if they loved it and she started crying and he got a little misty and looked away from the camera and said, you know, this has changed our lives and saved our marriage and little Timmy's going to be fine now. If all that stuff happened, I loved it and I also loved it when they hated it. And sometimes, generally, the wife of the home couldn't stand but get a little tough. I hate it. I told them no red, and I hate red, and it reminds me of, you know, just this big drama. Now that I think about it, that probably, the fact that I love that people hated it probably says something about the condition of my heart from time to time. Not Probably not a good thing for a Christian to do, but there it is. And TV shows, ever since that moment in so-called unscripted TV was discovered, TV shows have made a mint on the moment of the big reveal. And that's what we're all hanging on for. In a very much more important way, the quiet little almost obscure part of the Christmas story that we're going to read and talk about this morning is like that. When we read today's passage, we're actually past the birth of Jesus. Jesus is actually eight days old. And it's a culture and a time very different from our own, so let me explain to you what has happened. Jesus has been born in absolutely extraordinary circumstances. An ordinary young woman who was not yet married, had not yet slept with her husband, Joseph, had returned because of an imperial degree to the ancestral home of Bethlehem. Now they've made a journey eight days after his birth to Jerusalem. And there they are going to fulfill a religious obligation that as observant Jews in the first century, they still maintained. They were going to take their barely week old son into the temple and they were going to offer a very small, meager offering to God. They were going to dedicate Jesus to God. And you've seen me in a small resemblance of that ceremony. You've seen me do baby dedications up here, yeah? Young mom, young dad come up. They have a little baby in their arms. I learned a long time ago not to take the baby in my arms. He's skeptical enough. He's been through quite enough already. So I just stand at a respectful distance, usually try to put one hand on the dad's shoulder, and I pray for it. This is, in some ways, similar to that. But more than anything else, it's devotion to God. It's obedience to God's Jewish law of the time. It's a recognition that this baby boy that they've welcomed into their home, as countless others have, belongs to God. He is the firstborn, and they are dedicating him to God. There, in a part of the Christmas story that is barely known at all, they're going to meet a man named Simeon, who the passage tells us has been told by the Holy Spirit, one person of the Trinity, that he will not die until he personally sees the fulfillment of God's promise to send a Savior. Guided then into the temple by the Holy Spirit, Simeon comes upon Mary and Joseph, and what follows had to shock them. In fact, I know it does because the Bible says so. What we're going to find out in this story, which is as true to life as anything ever could be, you're going to find out that Jesus is God's own revelation. He reveals more than I can tell you. He reveals true hope. And that's our theme this year. And here's the thing I want you to constantly remember about hope. If it's really hope, it has to be based in truth. 
if there's no truth to what you're hoping for, it's just wishful thinking. This story, the Christmas story, the story of Jesus' arrival on earth, his advent would be a better word that is becoming more popular. God's arrival to earth, Jesus coming among us, this is an actual historical fact and it has all of the tension and the warts and the grit and the imperfection that you would expect from actual human beings. Let's read Luke chapter 2. You can read with me along in your outline if you like. The passage is in Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now what does that mean? Simeon somehow had been told personally by God the Holy Spirit that in his lifetime he would see the personal fulfillment of God's promises. That had to, be, that had to wake him up with excitement every day. We don't know how old Simeon is. I thought for years that he must have been an old man based on what he says when he starts praying to God. But the passage doesn't say that. But he woke up with an expectation that sometime in his lifetime, maybe today, God was personally going to show him that the things he had promised literally for thousands of years, that he first promised in a veiled reference to Adam and Eve that there would be a redeemer for them, he would see that fulfilled in his lifetime. And now with the plain, simple, historical, matter-of-fact language of the Bible, we're told that he goes into the temple complex and he is going to see the Lord's Christ. Verse 27, he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms. Now, moms, you've had an eight-day-old child at some point. Something strike you about this story already? He is a stranger to them. He walks up to them and takes their child in his arms. And that's not all. He speaks publicly to God in praise. He took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word. Who is Jesus? Watch this. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That's who Jesus is. And it's truth. It's fact. It's a historical event. Simeon goes on to say that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now, if you're reading that carefully, you might think there's a typo in your Bible because Simeon said that this was done as a revelation to the Gentiles and in the presence of all, what's that word? Peoples. Kind of sounds funny, doesn't it? A in the presence of all peoples. Isn't there an extra S there? You see, that word has a very specific meaning. It means nations or tribes or clans or ethnic groups. What Simeon is saying is, Lord, I'm ready to die now. This is why for years I assumed Simeon must have been an old man, but he might have been young. He might be saying, my life is never going to get any better than this. I am your servant, and Lord, I can go home now. I have seen your salvation, and he is, if you follow his prayers, you have done this in the presence of all the nations. It's a historical fact. It actually happened. 
This isn't a religious take on something like the Santa Claus story to make you feel better. The claim of the Bible and the claim of Jesus himself is that he was an actual historical person who lived an extraordinary but at the same time very ordinary human life as the son of Mary but at the same time the son of God who came in your place to live the life that you never could in God's presence to trade lives with you so that he could be your savior. Simeon says, you've done this publicly. You've done this in front of all the nations, and this child is going to be a light to the Gentiles. What's Simeon telling us here? That the love of God is better than you know and better than I can explain. What he's saying here is that Christmas, the advent of Jesus, means that all of God is given to all the nations. If you think about Simeon, if you can see that in your mind's eye, he is holding Jesus, having been guided there by the Holy Spirit, and he is praying to the Father, there is all of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, praying to the Father while holding the Son. I mean, what a picture. What is Mary and Joseph's reaction? You see the next verse? Look how normal, look how human this is. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Does it surprise you that they're still marveling? I mean, his birth wasn't exactly normal. It had been prophesied, it had been sung over by angels, it had occurred without them actually becoming physically man and wife yet. This is the wonder of the advent. What is happening in human history and actually happening is so extraordinarily big that Mary and Joseph, ordinary sinful human beings, are having a hard time day by day getting their minds around all that God is doing. All that God is for every nation on earth. And some 2,000 years later, this couldn't be any more timely. Never in my lifetime can I remember a time in the United States and around the world where we have been more riven, divided, and resentful over ethnic and national tensions. I mean, it's rough out there. People are being murdered because of the color of their skin. What is happening? What is Jesus doing? He is stepping into the flow of all of that dark history to bring light to the Gentiles. Now, if, like me, you're a Gentile, you just think that's an ethnic descriptor. Gentile just means non-Jewish. It meant much more to an observant Jew. It meant for the ordinary, not people who understood the Hebrew Scriptures, but to the ordinary day-to-day person living in this time, a Gentile was someone outside of God's love, to whom nothing had been promised, who deserved nothing but judgment who stood outside of God's hope and grace and glory. And Simeon, in his Holy Spirit-inspired prayer, says, no, you are bringing light to all the nations. You're doing this in the sight of the whole world to bring light to the Gentiles and glory to Israel because you're keeping the promises you made to them. Jesus is as timely as today as he was the day he was born. And what Simeon is telling us is simply this. Salvation is a person, Jesus Christ himself. It's not an ethic. It's not a spirit of Christmas or a system of religion. Simeon, when he prayed, he said, my eyes have seen your salvation. I'm holding him. And Mary and Joseph understandably, understandably were amazed. 
Salvation is a person, Jesus. That's the good news we have for you. Good friend sent me a quote from a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller. He says, every religion in the world has a founder that says, basically, do what I say and find God. Christianity alone says, its founder says, God is coming to you. Jesus came that close. He entered your experience with all the grit, with all the words, with everything about you except this saving difference. He was sinless. And this simple message is not only going to reveal salvation, that's the sole message of this church. We do a lot of different things, but at the heart of it is this simple truth that Jesus actually was born of a virgin, lived a sinless, perfect life in our place, died for our sins, and rose from the grave, an actual physical grave in which he was actually physically dead for three days so that we could have eternal life. It's the most extraordinary story ever told, and it's the best story because it's actually true. But the second thing that Jesus is going to reveal to us in this story and what makes this passage actually grip me is that Jesus is not only going to reveal salvation, he's, only, he's also going to reveal opposition. Simeon goes on to talk to Mary and Joseph. Verse 33, his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him and Simeon blessed them. This is a child dedication. Simeon now, by God's guidance, is being part of it. He is saying blessings over them, and then it gets awkward. And then it gets really, really gritty. Then it gets a little bit scary. If you were the mother in that condition, you would not have wanted this blessing pronounced over you. Let me read to you so you'll understand what I mean. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. What Simeon is saying is, Mary, your, your little baby boy here is going to divide the world. He is a sign that is going to be opposed. He is literally the physical embodiment of the person and the work of God on earth. He is the promise that God made. He will bring light to the Gentiles. He is a historical fact. He is an actual human being who is announcing his life and his ministry publicly in sight of all the nations of the world. But not everybody's going to like it, Mary. The sign of God coming to the world in this way will be opposed. And in fact, when he starts his work in Israel, some will rise and some will fall because of him. Whatever did he mean? If you continue reading the life story of Jesus, you're going to find that people oppose him. All the people who opposed Jesus had this single thing in common. They were self-righteous. They trusted themselves. They thought they knew better. Like us. You see, when we call Jesus the Savior, that's a humbling term. Because nobody really wants saving. Savior, if you're my Savior, it means that I'm helpless. 
If you're a savior, it means that there's nothing left that I can do for myself, that unless you intervene, I will be hurt or damaged or lost or dead. And nobody likes to think of themselves in that way. We like to pull ourselves up by our good old American bootstraps. A saying that only exists in America, by the way, as far as I can tell. We like to be self-reliant. We like to figure it out. If we're religious people, we like to choose a religion and do it better than anybody else. And as Jesus starts his adult ministry and starts preaching the kingdom of God and the salvation that only comes through him, it splits people right down the middle. There is opposition. He is a sign that is spoken against, and that continues and remains until this day. The reason you might be a little anxious at the cash register and you don't know whether to say happy holidays, Merry Christmas, or nothing at all and grab your money and run is because 2,000 years later, Jesus continues to divide people. You're afraid, perhaps, that a simple expression of seasonal goodwill like Merry Christmas might deeply offend somebody. Understand this, Jesus has always been that way. You can't come among people and say, I am God in the flesh. I came from heaven and I am returning there. And if you want to go to heaven, you have to trust me. And I'm the only one in the only way. You can't say that sort of thing without dividing people. And this is the reality of Christmas. The reason the light had to shine among the Gentiles and salvation had to come is because this world needs saving. This world is dark, and all too many of you are feeling the darkness as Christmas approaches. Your family gatherings aren't perfect. They're shot through with grief and regret and awkwardness and strained relationships. Why is that? Because of the sin that permeates the world. That's why Jesus came. That's why this blessing is so real. I'm terribly afraid sometimes that we pastors and Bible teachers, sometimes we cut the reading short and only tell the good part without reading the whole story which accounts for all of life. As we go chronologically through the Bible together, through the story, you're going to find that the Bible is always honest even when it's painfully so. And if you'll read it honestly, you'll understand that the Lord who made life accounts for and explains all of life. And that is why Simeon's blessing, no other way to put it, is so awkward and so painful. Look what he said to Mary. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Then the translator uses parentheses to show you that this is an aside to Mary. He's speaking about Jesus. He is a sign to be opposed. He is going to reveal people's hearts. Some people will rise and other people will fall because of him. What's the difference? Self-righteousness. Those who are humble enough to know that they need a savior, they will rise with him. Those who insist on saving themselves, they will fall. And he says, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. How'd you like that as a blessing at the dedication of your baby, Mom? Can you imagine? Got a young couple up here with a cute kid who's one of the few that doesn't cry at the sight of me. And I pray and bless God and you all say amen. And then I look her square in the eye and say, listen, I'll tell you one more thing. This is going to be brutal. Raising this boy is going to break your heart. Whatever did Simeon mean? 
Well, you don't read much more of Mary in the gospel story, but if you read the end of the story of the gospel of John, Mary is one of the few people who was close to Jesus who was actually standing at the foot of his cross. Jesus was opposed from the moment he began preaching. He was always loving, but he was also clear. He never conceded and yielded on the truth of who he was. He still doesn't. Sometimes his messengers kind of swallow our words, and we say less than what he said, and we claim that he's less than what he actually is. But Jesus never did. He never minced words. He said scandalous, radical things like this, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I'm the one. I'm the way. That's what he told his disciples. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says something I mean, astonishing. No wonder there was opposition. He said in the Gospel of John, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That's big. If you don't honor me, you don't honor the Father who sent me. His disciple John said, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. What is the central truth of what Simeon is saying? about the life of Jesus opposed as it is bringing light and salvation or offering it to the world but being opposed every step of his life the point that Simeon would have every reader of the gospel of Luke know is this your response to Jesus determines your relationship to God simple as that because Jesus is God in the flesh when you respond to Jesus you are responding to God himself you are answering the father who sent him and if you love the Son, you love the Father. If you confess, in other words, you claim the Son, you also have the Father. This, Simeon says, is going to be opposed. And Mary's going to grow up watching this. Jesus' family is literally going to think, if you read the Gospels carefully, they're literally going to think he has lost his mind and come on one occasion to take control of him and take him home. Mary is going to watch, apparently with unfolding wonder, the rest of her life, this Savior, this single Savior that God has sent into the world to shed his light not only on God's people Israel, but on the whole of the nations, on every tribe, on every person that God loves. But it's going to be opposed every step of the way. So my invitation to you is understand, Jesus is revealing to you the salvation of God and your, the natural inclination of your heart initially is to oppose him. No one starts out believing. I didn't. I was raised with this truth in my life from the earliest of ages. But even though I was a kid, I fought it. My pride and my self-righteousness literally made me stop praying the night I was trying to trust Christ as my Savior on two separate occasions. Say, nope, don't need to do this. Pretty good kid, not perfect, but doing pretty well. And that dynamic is in every human heart. That's why Simeon says at the end of his words to Mary and Joseph, he said, Jesus is doing all this so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus shows it all. The salvation of God and the opposition in the human heart that wants to push him out. And you know where we, his disciples, get off track? 
one of many ways, a small one at Christmas time. We want to make a big campaign to make sure that people say Merry Christmas. You know why some people don't? Because they don't believe him. They are the reason he came. Those people don't need to be scolded into changing their phraseology. They need Jesus to change their heart. To awaken him to the historical reality that this isn't something that churches made up. Or that religious people made up because they were tired of all the other religions and they wanted their own. No, these were people who against their own intellect in the beginning, against their own interests, gradually came to the realization that this actually was God on earth. And if that there was any way out of sin and out of the darkness that strikes and destroys every life and every family and plunges all of us, even at our best, into a mixed experience of hope and sorrow over sin, there was any hope of redeeming all of that, it was Jesus and Jesus alone. So what specifically am I inviting you to? If you're his disciple, let's risk some opposition so that other people may trust Jesus as Savior. People don't need to be campaign legislated or persuaded into anything except for this single historical truth, that Jesus came to save them. And that if they will yield and believe him, they will have the Father also. They will be welcomed into God's family. They will have their sins forgiven, their heart and mind renewed. And they will be amazed at all that God does because he is for them. If you are here this morning and you haven't fully, personally trusted Jesus as your Savior, this is your opportunity. God gives you life and the understanding and the motivation to be in church this morning when you could have been a thousand other places, many of them much more fun than anything we've done today to hear this, that God loves you so much that he sent his son to live among us, to live your life for you, to live in your place, to trade lives with you so that you could enjoy God and know that you are his own daughter, his own son. Adopted into God's family because of his great love for you, he wanted to shine his light, the truth of his love into your heart and welcome you in, not by force, but by love. Church, in a couple days, we will offer three Christmas Eve services to our community. We've never done three. We packed out two. We thought it was worth the risk of having three and maybe having 12 people in one. We have no idea. What are we going to tell people in that service in a much shorter format? I'm going to tell them what I've just told you. That Jesus loves them. That he died to cover their sins. That he opens a door as wide as Jesus himself into God's family to the forgiveness of sins. And that truth, that reality for your friends, for your family, for your co-workers whom you're thinking about inviting or praying for, or opening your mouth again, but you don't want to because it makes it awkward, it makes it a tough place. Listen, that opposition, that's just part of being a disciple. And it's worth it, far worth it to risk it so that they may have the blessing and the opportunity to believe, not you, believe him and be saved. So let's do it. Let's risk some opposition. Let's risk a little pushback. Let's show his love, let's tell of his invitation, and leave the rest to the Lord so that people may trust him as their Savior. Would you pray with me now, please?
Let me conclude by speaking very personally to those of you who may have not yet crossed the line. And you thought maybe it was about coming to church or doing a little better or turning over a new leaf. None of that will help. Your only hope is to have a Savior. What does that look like? That looks like this. You put your self-reliance down. Self-righteousness, self-confidence. And you realize to God that you cannot save yourself and you ask him to do it instead. Does that take humility? You bet. It takes all the humility you've got to say, Jesus, I can't save myself. I can't ever be good enough. I'll never clean myself up well enough. I need you to come in and save me. I'm sorry for my sins. Save me. He will. If you haven't done that, my invitation is for you to do that right now. He understands it's a personal relationship. You don't need any ritual specific words. You just need to move your, tra- your trust from yourself to him, your religion, your upbringing, your family name, your membership in a church, whatever it is that you've been trusting, all those things combined, move that trust from those things to him and he will save you. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm lost without you. Please save me. He will. And I pray and ask you simply, if you do that today, let us know through one of those connection cards. Drop that in the basket in a little, in a little while. Leave it in a box before you leave. Let us know that you've trusted Jesus as your Savior. There's nothing more for us to do but to celebrate with you and to help you do what we're trying to do to follow him, be his disciple. And listen, for the majority of people here, I'm sure that's settled. You're saved. You know the truth of what I'm telling you. Now let's gather up some holy courage and risk a little pushback so that other people will get to hear about it. Mary suffered for it. Every disciple does. Every disciple that really claims Jesus at a certain point feels the sword of pain and rejection, not because they're rejecting you, but because they're pushing back against him. It's worth it. Risk it. He's worth it, and so are your friends, so are your family. Lord, we commit this time to you. I pray right now that you would speak personally, just as clearly as you once did to Simeon, and persuade and bring those in who need to be saved. That right now, in their own words, with their own faith, they would say, Jesus, I believe you, please save me. And they would let us know about it so we could celebrate and begin to teach them all the other things you told us to do. For those, Lord, who, the many of us, who feel a little tension and a little distance from friends and family and neighbors, and we're worried about inviting them into relationship or even a worship service dedicated to you, help us push through that so that people in our community will know that you are the Savior. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.